Well, I have a, a good friend. Many of you know him. His name is David Wagner. David Wagner was an elder of our church for many years. Uh, from the very beginning of the inception and, and, and start of Redemption Community Church, he served here for faithfully, and his family took a full-time uh, position in North Carolina. And David and I have worked on many projects together. And uh, we remodeled our first building by gutting it completely and building uh, the inside. Uh, we, we did many projects around his house, like tearing out his bathroom shower without his wife's permission. Um, and one of the things that you would notice about David when he was working is that he was always singing. He was always singing. And his, this was a blessing and a curse because he had a good voice and he wasn't trying to show off his voice. But he, he tended to sing the songs that you did not want him to sing. And when he found out that that song was not your favorite, he would sing it louder and more frequently. But without, without a doubt, you could count on the fact that in, in certain settings, particularly in, in projects and things of that nature, David was singing while he was working. And what it communicated was not that he was showy, not that he was trying to let everybody know that he has a great singing voice, which he does, but that he was full of joy, which is why he sang. He was a happy guy. And it communicated without, uh, without misunderstanding that, that, that David was enjoying what he was doing as he sang. And I think that as we approach um, the, con- the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah, I want us to think about why we sing in church gatherings. I want us to understand and see from the scripture today the importance of singing to the Lord out of the joy of our own heart. We're going to see from Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 the culmination of the way in which the people of Israel in the completion of God's work with and through them they celebrated by dedicating all that God had done, the temple, the, the city, the walls, everything, and they, they celebrated by singing to the Lord with joy in their heart. Now, we could say and, and, and understand from Scripture that God created us to sing His praises. We, we know that God created us for His ultimate glory, to to enjoy Him forever and to glorify Him with all of our being throughout eternity in our presence with Him. And one of the things that you see uh, represented in those that God has created, whether it be the creation itself, the Bible talks about if we did not praise God, that God would literally raise up creation to praise Him. Literally stones and rocks would sing His praises. That's the power of God. And so we see the angels praising God and magnifying Him in many different scenarios throughout the Scriptures. And of course we see the the people of God praising Him. You know, the Bible tells us that that we are to sing the the praises of the Lord. the, The Bible tells us that He put a new song in our mouth and we're to praise Him and magnify Him. 
And so this is just one way in which we would uh, enter into the worship of the Lord by praising his holy name. Matter of fact, I would say that God in his creativity and his design made music in such a way that it should always be given or, or produced or delivered for his glory. In other words, not every song has to be about God, but every song should be for God. And every music accompaniment and arrangement should be written at least for this fact of glorifying God. That's how all of creation should live and exist. But the problem is sin has entered the world. And so people have begun to take what God has blessed them with, the skills and the talents to to sing and to make melody and music with their mouths and their voices, and they've corrupted that very thing so that music and, and melody no longer glorifies God. But I will tell you that they were created to glorify God with their voices. They were created to glorify God with with song and praise, thanking God for all that he has done. And they should do that because God reveals himself to us and he he enters into relationship with us. and, And therefore we sing to the Lord with joy in knowing him because we have a reason to sing for joy. One of the greatest gifts of the 21st century uh, church is Keith and Kristen Getty. We sang one of their songs tonight, today. And they've conf- con- composed many of these theologically rich hymns that we know and love that we, that we sing in our church um, most particularly that, that I'm very thankful for. And in a, a small little booklet that they wrote called Sing, they write these words about singing it says, when singing to praise God, so much, uh, so much more than just the vocal box that is engaged. God created our minds to judge pitch and to judge lyric, to think through concepts that we sing, to engage the intellect, the imagination and memory, and to remember what is set in tune. God has formed our hearts to be moved with the depth of feeling and a whole range of emotion as the melody carried truths of who God is and whose we are sink in. One of the things that we're going to see in our passage today is a, is a summary. I'd like to summarize, if I can, from the beginning of Ezra to the almost completion or end of Nehemiah to be reminded of a great truth that we've tried to look at throughout this study, and that is the faithfulness of God. And then argue from the text, and and the point to make from the text, is that this is why the people of Israel, the Jewish people, these returned exiles, are singing with great joy at the final dedication of this city. Not because they had accomplished great things, but because they belong to the one true God. And because he was faithful. And because they had a joy in their heart. And they had a song in their heart. And they knew that God had done great things for his own glory. And all they could do. The only uh, logical response to such an, uh, an understanding about what God had been doing. Is to praise him in song. And that's what he does in us. As the church. He leads us to understand who he is as he's created us to be, to know him. And because we know him, we're full of joy. And out of the abundance of that joy, we sing and praise his name. 
Many of you are closet shower singers. You don't really want people to know that. My children, I can hear them at times in, the, in our houses singing in the shower. You kind of get lost in that moment, right? You get lost, just, you know, you got great acoustics in there. You're just kind of, you got the time to yourself. You really believe in some moment of, of that time singing in the shower that you are the best singer in the world because of the, the deformity of the acoustic sound in there. You're like, man, I should really do something with this in my life. But then you get into settings like this, and all of a sudden your singing starts to dull because you think about other things that might keep you from really singing the way that you sing in the shower. You're reserved. You hold back. And there's a lot of different ways in which we, as God's people, should be excited and full of joy to come into the gathering of His people and sing His praises, and yet there are distractions and things that keep us from truly worshiping and honoring the Lord through song. Think about it. Some of the distractions that keep us from being faithful to singing joyfully in church, the circumstances of our life. Just the day that you had today can put you in such a sour mood that you come in here and you don't want to sing about anything. And if that's the case, you probably don't want to learn about anything. And there's a distraction there. There's an obstacle, there's a barrier that's keeping you from doing what you were created to do to sing the praises of the Lord. Maybe it's the fear of man. You know, if you sit in the back of the service and sing, you know that every row in front of you might hear you. But nobody wants to sit on the front with me. I don't understand it. But we oftentimes get very aware of the fear of man that that creeps up in us, that, that all of a sudden we should be singing the praises of God for all that He has revealed to us and all of His faithfulness in our life. But yet, for some reason, we're concerned about Joe and Susie on each side of us that might hear that our, our sound quality is not up to par with other people around us today. So we're just fearful of man and our reputation. And sometimes... We don't sing because our lives are full of sin. And sin has caused us to, to be bitter at ourselves or be bitter at God. And, and, and so the, the new song that's been placed in our mouth because of the work of Jesus has been overwritten or, or masked with the habitual sin in our lives and, and, our, and our fellowship with God is broken and therefore we can't sing because all we can think about is not what Jesus has done, but what I've done and how I've failed Him. Those are distractions. And church, let me encourage you that that as we enter into a place of gathering together, whether it's in this building or outside at the park or at somebody's house like Adam and Shauna's at the Good Friday service, shameless plug, you should sing knowing that your songs and your words are directed toward the Lord who has done all that He needs to accomplish for for your good. Don't allow distractions to interfere. But it also doesn't have to be dis- distractions. It also can be disinterest. You don't sing because you don't believe. You don't sing because the Lord has not put a new song in your heart. He hasn't given you a new passion and love for Him. And so you really have no joy to sing about the Lord. Now you might sing so that other people might not see you not singing. 
which goes back to the fear of man. But evaluate yourself. Why is it that you don't sing in church? Is it because you really don't believe? Or maybe it's just because you didn't understand, you were unaware of your need and the command of God's word to sing and make praises and melody with your, with your mouth to the Lord. My prayer from these passages today is that the Lord would renew and cre- or create a clear understanding of every blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ to not only understand the new song that we have to sing and what Jesus has accomplished, but we would be committed to singing that with all of our might, with thankfulness in our hearts for the faithfulness of God as His people for His glory. So, my first point to you today is simply this, that our singing starts with our truth about the Lord. You can't sing properly about the Lord if you don't know about the Lord. It it starts with your understanding of who He is and, and how He's revealed Himself to be. And this is where a lot of churches fall into deep and, 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 and irreverent and unbiblical singing and worship is because they're not singing about the great grand truths of God. They're babbling and they're, 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 they're repetitive with gibberish that has nothing to do with God. Matter of fact, there was a season in my life as a young Christian where worship music was all about me. And all about what I needed and what I wanted, not about who God was. And so we should start understanding who God is and what He's done. Because our understanding of the theological truths of God will drive us to sing with passion and with joy in our hearts. And so this is the truth of the Lord. That from Ezra Ezra chapter 1, all the way through the book of Ezra all the way through the book of Nehemiah into chapter 12, verse 26, we have seen a constant reminder of the faithfulness of our God. That He is a faithful God who will carry out His promises for His people. He never failed Israel. He never never failed Judah. He constantly was, re, was, was faithful to do what He promised to do in spite of their rebellion and their sin. And so we think about the, the story of, of allowing them to, uh, to, to escape the captivity. We told you, I've told you over and over again that this is considered the second exodus. The first exodus under Moses where God displays His power over the false gods of Egypt and the false worship of their leader, Pharaoh. He shows His power through the plagues that surpass all the false gods and the, 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 the fake power that they had in that, in that land. He demonstrates His sovereignty over these human leaders so that Pharaoh's heart was hardened as a direct result of God carrying out His purposes and His will until His full glory was displayed among not only just the Israelites, but the Egyptians as well. So that they may see the one true God and believe. And it was exactly as God had determined it. And do you know what Moses did at the end of this exodus? 
when God had delivered them and they were now free from their captors, he sang a song. Exodus chapter 15, if you turn there with me. Hold your place in Nehemiah. All Moses could do in Exodus chapter 15, after crossing the Red Sea, was to stop and he and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord. And this is what he sang. He writes, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. In the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hand has established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now we know the story. God's faithfulness is always apparent, always visible, always clearly seen. They already saw the the, the exodus as an example of what God had promised Moses, and He promised the people, and He showed it. And now they are singing, not only about their escape from Egypt, but where God would plant them. And we know that the truth of that story comes to fruition as He lands them in Canaan. And now here we are again in the second exodus. Once again as oppressed people, once again living as prisoners under the Babylonian rule. God sovereignly displays His power and His might by once again leading the people, not by a Jewish man like Moses, by a Persian king. And so sovereignly ruling over all things, allowing this Persian king to well up inside of him a passion to let the Jewish people go free. And in doing so, sending them back to the promised land, back to the city of Jerusalem, back to reestablish their worship, 
because he is a faithful God who carries out his promises. So they send a wave number one back with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the second wave with Ezra, and finally the last wave with Nehemiah. In each step, there was a precise strategic moment that they were adding to and recreating that which God had allowed to be destroyed by their enemies because of their sinfulness. And yet God never left them nor forsook them. He continued with them faithfully until finally we get to Nehemiah chapter 11. As he reestablishes the worship, they see and hear the law again. In Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, we're told these words. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine of the ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And from chapter four or chapter 11, verse 4, all the way down to the end of the chapter, you see a record, another list, a historical document of the people of Israel resettling and repopulating the city of Jerusalem. Now we already looked at Nehemiah chapter 7 when they studied the genealogy and they made sure that whoever was going to go back into the city was truly a Jewish person, that they they, they checked the registry, they checked the names to make sure that everybody would be there, it would be official as people who belonged to the nation of Israel. But now in chapter 11, we see the people going back into the city. And I'm not going to cover all the verses in chapter 11 because, again, it's just a, re, uh, a, a summary or a re- recollection of all the people, all the names that we have seen. And what it shows us is that through it all, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. They reestablished the temple. They reestablished the temple, the worship in the temple. They rebuilt the walls and the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of Zion, was once again populated and once again set out to be a glory of God to the nations. That's what was going on. That's what was promised. And this is what's coming to fruition, showing us that God is faithful, that God is going to do all that he established to do. So as an outline, verses 10 through 14 of chapter 11, we see that the priests and their families are listed as those who would dwell in and around the city, the Levites and, the, and their families in verses 15 through 21, and then finally verses 22 through 36 deals with the rest of God's people who would live inside and outside the city. And they were trusting the Lord. They were casting lots to determine who would go into the city and live. And they were, the, the, the crescendo is building up for us to understand that God was completing his work. That the people that would dwell there would represent the people of God in the holy city. And then into verse 12, or chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, is another set of lists 
Again, displaying the faithfulness of God. This set of lists is referencing the, the, the priests and the Levites who would serve in the temple. And the, the reason that this list is stated here is because as you study these lists, you will begin to see the origins of these servant priests or temple priests and temple servants, the Levites, and, and, and seeing the lineage in which they come from. And remember, this was very important to God and, and, and the way he established those who would serve in the temple. To be a priest, you had to belong to the family of Aaron. To be a Levite, you had to belong to the family of Levi. And what we see is a documentation, a list, a, a proven fact that God had done what he was faithful to do and said he was going to do. So that those who, who belonged as priests and served as priests and those who uh, belonged to the, the family of Levi served as Levites doing the different functions within the temple. Because God sets out to accomplish something and he never fails us. And so we come to this understanding then in seeing all these things that have happened from not only Ezra chapter 1, but Genesis chapter 1. That God is faithful and that God is going to accomplish his purposes and that God is going to do all that he set out to do to bring himself glory. And we as God's people respond to that in thankfulness. That we would be able to see that. That we would be able to understand that. That the faithfulness of God shines forth to not only accomplish his purposes, but that God, God's people would be used in those purposes. I mean, these, these Jews were here prisoners in Babylon. And they knew that the promises was that, were that they would perhaps one day be rescued and be able to return. And, and so they were, they were set upon this promise to believe or not to believe the promise. And to have the hope that one day God would do what he said he was going to do. That many believed that the, that the rescue would come, that the liberation would come again. And God carried forth that promise. And they experienced the return and they experienced the rebuilding and they overcame the opposition from the enemies. And there they were staring at the rebuilt walls and the rebuilt temple and the established and repopulated city. And all they could do was respond in worship. And so we as a church must understand that our proper worship flows out of a realistic reflection of God's character and work. These Old Testament books are important because we see God's faithfulness in every page. We see His character, His steadfast love, His mercy, His grace. We see His long-suffering for His people. And in doing so, it leads us to a place where we, in that revelation, understand Him and worship Him. Matter of fact, again, in, in, their, in the book by the Gettys, seeing Keith and Kristen Getty say, we're not compelled to worship out of thin air. Something or rather, some, something or rather someone stirs us to worship as a response to revelation. God has revealed Himself to you. And in that revelation, 
You come and you pray and you hear Scripture read and you read Scripture and you sing and you learn and you worship and celebrate who Jesus is. But it starts with what we understand about Him. So as other smarter people than me have said, our theology leads to our doxology. What we know about God leads to our celebration and praise of Him. So secondly then, all of this culminates to the celebration. In chapter 12, verse 26, to the end of the chapter, we see a dedication of all that God has done. The walls are built, and they dedicate these walls. The city is built, they dedicate the city. And they do it all by singing. Singing with joy. If we look at verse 27, we see that the the family of faith, at the dedication of the wall, they gather together and they celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing with cymbals and harps and lyres. The word dedication in the Hebrew is the word Hanukkah. And as the Jewish people in our culture today celebrate Hanukkah, they're not celebrating this, but they are celebrating. They are celebrating the dedication of the temple. Jewish people are celebrating Hanukkah for the dedication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt in uh, later on past these days of the Jews. But the word Hanukkah in the Hebrew means dedication. It means to set something apart for the Lord. And what are they celebrating? The dedication of the city of God that has been reestablished. And how are they celebrating? With the singing, with playing music, and rejoicing in who God is. And this is the spirit of the people. They are full of great joy. Look at verse 42. They offer great sacrifices that day. They rejoice for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Church, what does it say about us? What does it say about us if we know the things that God has revealed to us as his people and we don't celebrate him? What does it say about us? If people see us walking around doom and gloom without the, not understanding the joy that they can have in Christ. Understanding the things in which He has revealed to us. Because the truth of the matter is, the Bible tells us in, in chapter, 40, uh, chapter 12 verse 42 that God gave them this joy. That God made them rejoice with great joy. Because He's the provider of joy. How does He provide joy for us? Well, it comes with the knowledge of Him. It comes with the truths of how we understand Him. So as you read your Bible, as you dive deep into a book of study, understand that God is firming a foundation of you to to celebrate Him and to rejoice in His name. That we as a church choose specific songs to sing because they are not babbling over and over again, repeating the same words and the same verses. We want you to learn as you sing. That's our mission. And not learn about us, and not learn about David or learn about Abraham, but learn about the Lord. 
And we have much to still learn and we have much to sing about his holy name. And so if you're a believer in the church today, understand that the joy that you have is given to you by the Lord. You come to understand this truth about him, that that joy in a sense is a gift that the Lord gives us. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John Calvin says, it's called Christ's joy and our joy in various respects. He says it's Christ's because it was given to us by him. For he is both the author and the cause of our joy. He says, I say that he is the cause of it because we are freed from guilt when the chastisement of our peace was laid on him. I call, it, call him also the author of it because by his spirit he drives away dread and anxiety in our hearts and then arises that calm cheerfulness. He adds that this joy will be solid and full, not that believers will be entirely free from sadness, but that the ground for joy will be far greater than our sadness. So that no dread, no anxiety, no grief will swallow them up. For those whom it has been given to glory in Christ will not be prevented either by life or by death or by distresses from abiding in the joy of the Lord. This means, church, that we have a reason to sing with joy in our hearts because of what Christ has done. As we read through Nehemiah chapter 12, these people of the Lord had a reason to sing. They are seeing the culmination of God's work through, in and through them, standing in this great city, this temporary city, this city that changed and fluctuated throughout history to look very differently throughout time. And yet, in that moment, God was working through them to reestablish the things that He had set out to reestablish, and they were singing with joy. And here's how they did it. The leadership of, of the Jews, Nehemiah and Ezra, they form choirs of people. And, and they send these two choirs out, one clockwise around the city, one counterclockwise around the city, and they literally meet up at the temple. And there they are gathering together these massive choirs that were literally walking up upon the walls that had been created in Jerusalem. And I imagine that as they're walking along these walls, they're remembering uh, crossing over each gate that had been rebuilt. They're remembering the oppression and the opposition that they faced in trying to rebuild. They remember the enemies who tried to rise up to stop their work. They remember the ways in which God was faithful to allow them to continue to rebuild, continue to have supplies, to continue to be safe. And there they are, they, they, they end up at the temple. And church, you've got to remember that, that that building to them was the presence of the Lord. That's where he dwelt. That's what they thought about him. So to literally travel around the city and recall all that God had done and to meet at the temple and be reflective of this is where God will come and dwell with us. What a privilege and a joy to not only know the Lord, but that he would come and be among men. And that's what Jesus Christ did in our hearts. 
That we look out to the scope of our life and we see all these examples of God's faithfulness to us and the ways that, have, that God has revealed His purposes and His plans and He's carried out those plans in Jesus so that Jesus would save us and send His Spirit to live in us so that we have a lot to sing about. That this great choral display of affection and love for God only points forward to the church now gathered. Not in a temple that has any sanctimonious or sacred uh, importance, but just a building because we are the church in the building. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the, 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 the very abode in which God dwells within us so that we come together. And what's so unnatural for us is to come in here as someone who possesses the temple of the Holy Spirit and not have joy to sing about in what Jesus has done. It's unnatural, church. Singing congregationally is a privilege and a responsibility of every church member. Because the scriptures don't suggest that we sing to the Lord. They say sing to the Lord. We're commanded to do so. And we should desire to do so. As a privilege and a duty. As a way in which we express the love that we have for God. And a way in which we minister to one another. Now I know what you're thinking. Pastor, my singing doesn't minister to anybody. Well, I would disagree. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The psalm is a command to reflect our love and, our, and, and, and the, the praise of God with not only singing, but playing musical instruments. That the skills that God has given us to sing and the, and the skills that God has given us to, to make melody and, and make music with instruments is an expression of God's creativity in us and is a blessing to people around us. But even if you think your singing's not the great, the greatest, it is a benefit to God's people that you sing. Matt Merker in his book, Corporate Worship, writes, singing is a part of every member's ministry to the whole body. When you join a church, he says, you join the choir. You become a steward of the spiritual vitality of the body. A stewardship you fulfill in part by opening your mouth in song. The church member enduring persecution from his earthly family, they need to hear his spiritual brothers and sisters sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. The Christian burdened by shame, he says, needs to hear us exult, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Our weary hearts Long to hear the gospel reverberate around us in surround sound. We hear the voices of our fellow church members and remember that we're not in this alone. God has welcomed us into a family that sings. It's our spiritual duty 
And it's our joy because the, the joy of the Lord has been given to us. Because as we come in and we gather and we come to God's word and we submit ourselves to his word, we think, well, for some of us, singing is uncomfortable. For some of us, singing is difficult. And we press through. In the same way we press through that, that prayer is difficult for others and, and reading long passages of Scripture is difficult for others and preaching sermons is difficult for others. We press through because it's an edification and a sanctification for ourselves and us as a whole, a community of God's people. Always looking to Jesus as our King and our Lord. So let me encourage you, church, as the people of, 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 the, of, of Israel were coming to sing and celebrate who God is and what He had accomplished, so you too stand at the foot of the cross at the open tomb and you're reminded that Jesus Christ has died upon that cross and rose victoriously from the grave. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you His joy. He's united us together as one body. You have so much to sing about. And I'm not asking you to sing begrudgingly. That spirit in a person does not honor the Lord. Instead, I'm simply asking you to ask yourself, why don't I sing? Am I worried about what other people are thinking? Do I really truly have the joy of the Lord in my life? Is He truly my Lord? Maybe when we feel feel the fears of man rise up in us as we sing together. Instead of looking around at what other people might think, let's look to Christ. Look to Christ who saves sinners, who liberates our bondage, who gives us His righteousness, who removes our filthy rags and gives us a place as His sons and daughters at the table, who provides an eternal rest in Him. Consider this Jesus who put the new song in your mouth by His grace and for His glory. So sing the truth of the Lord, all you sinners who have been made new. Sing of the Lord's grace and faithfulness that He's displayed to you. Sing of His everlasting mighty arm that he, has, that he has the power to save. And sing of His holy and only Son who died, was buried, and rose from the grave. Would you pray with me? Father, what, a, what an amazing reflection that we have in our text today about all that you have done, all that you have accomplished, all that you have revealed about yourself. And Father, for those who belong to you, God, we have this joy in our hearts. And we have a reason to sing, and we have a reason to celebrate you today. Father, forgive us for the times and the moments that we allow the distractions of this world, of our human weakness and fears to keep us from proclaiming that which you deserve, our eternal praises. God, we thank you for your son and we thank you that because of his work upon the cross, you have put a new song in our mouth. And we acknowledge that you deserve all the worship and praise that we can give, even to an exhaustible moment. So God, as we reflect upon music and we reflect upon song in our lives, God, may we do those things for your glory forever and ever, even into eternity. 
as you've created us to do. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.